All right, y'all may be seated. Welcome to Gateway Christian Church and uh, the third session uh, of our Contagious Faith Conference. We're glad that you're here with us tonight. Uh, my name is Brian Dillon, and I am the Taze Valley Campus Minister, and we're glad that all of you have come out here uh, this evening. You know, Dave came right before the service and said, Brian, I need the best and brightest to come and introduce Mark tonight. And I said, here I am. Send me. Uh, and so... Uh, here we are. Uh, hey, you know, uh, we've had a great first couple sessions this morning, and uh, and we're hoping for more of that to continue this evening. Uh, I'm confident in that. So tonight, you might have heard, we're going to have uh, some question and answers uh, after Mark's message here in just a moment. And uh, we have three ways that you can submit your questions. And I've been told there is a slide that's going to give you more information on that. <clears throat> but I'm losing confidence in that uh, as we go. So there's going to be three ways. And the first is that we're going to have a microphone in-house that you can submit your questions right through there. We're also going to be able to submit them through the, I just needed to start talking and then it would come. Uh, then we're also going to have the ability to submit it through the Facebook live stream. Show me, there we go, in the Facebook chat. And then number three, uh, we're going to have the opportunity to ask a question anonymously and uh, if you, like me, wondered what that meant, uh, there is going to be a QR code that's going to take you to a link on your phone, and that that's going to take you to like a forum almost, and you'll be able to go through uh, and click that you want to ask a question and just type your question in through there, and it'll be sent anonymously. Uh, we'll be able to have Mark answer that question. So uh, there it is right there. And so uh, you can scan that, and any questions you might have, uh, all questions. We accept all questions. I said last week, if, you could, if we could just keep the cussing to a message. So, like I said, this morning uh, we had the first two sessions in our Contagious Faith Conference, and uh, we're excited uh, for Mark to bring the third uh, session, third message tonight. So let's give a big round of applause for Mark Middleberg. You know, these touch ID things only work when you're not in front of a group of people here. Huh. All right. Bear with me. <laughs> there it is. Hello. Now, Brian, if, if they ask a question anonymously, then can I answer it anonymously somehow, too? Or is that, how's, I don't know how that works, but uh, anyway, we won't worry about that. I want to welcome you all back. It's been a great day and uh, lots of information. If, if you're not overwhelmed yet with what we've been doing, we'll keep trying. And uh, I want to jump in. What I, I thought I would do first is just a quick review in case any of you missed the other points that we've gone through, I'm not going to teach them again because it's a lot of information, but the whole idea, let me move this chart up a little, the whole idea here is that there are a variety of reasons that we can be confident Christianity is true. I call them 20 arrows of truth. Of course, after I wrote the book, Confident Faith, I kept thinking of more reasons and could, could expand it, but I'll be merciful, I won't uh, tonight. 
Um, but this is, for those of you that study apologetics, this is what's called a cumulative case approach, where you're looking from all these different disciplines. And earlier today, we looked to philosophy and science. We've been looking at history. We've been, we started talking about things related to the Bible. I mean, it gets us some things related to Jesus. But just each of these arrows represents one of these pieces of evidence or an argument or, or you know, reasons to believe. And scaring me. Uh, the first one is the design in the universe points to an intelligent designer. And so that's one of these arrows. Uh, the next one is fine-tuning. Remember, I talked about the 50 dials that are dialed into a razor's edge of precision to be right where they needed to be so that life could exist. And they all are right where they had to be. And the question is, how did that happen? Did that happen by chance? Or did it happen by design? And, you know, what, usually when you see something fine-tuned, there's someone that fine-tuned it. And so I think that's really strong evidence. By the way, for those of you that go, well, that's pretty philosophical. That's, I know of a guy, a book you can get by a, a scholar named um, Patrick Glynn, G-L-Y-N-N. Uh, it's called God, colon, the evidence. God, the evidence. And this is what turned him around right here. I mean, the evidence for fine-tuning. The more he looked at it, he said, there must be a God, and if there's God or a real God, I bet you he's related to Jesus, and he led him into Christianity. He's a follower of Christ today, just based on this one arrow. Pretty cool. I mean, he got more information, but that was the turning point for him alone. The third one, we talked about information encoded into DNA points to the reality of some incredible intelligence, a divine encoder behind that incredible code. It's three billion letters long, four-part cryptographic code that would take 31 years to read if you read day and night, just to read the information in one cell in your body. And so you go, what kind of mind was behind that message? Pretty incredible. Uh, the next one is uh, the origins of the universe point to a divine originator. Uh, whatever has a beginning has a cause, the universe had a beginning. Therefore, the uh, universe has a cause, and that cause is outside of time, therefore eternal. The cause is non-physical, because we're talking about the beginning of the whole physical universe. So the cause of the physical universe is a non-physical being, which I said sounds spiritual to me. Um, it's incredibly powerful, wise, artistic, um, loving, I think, because of the way life was created, and so forth. Um, and so those were the scientific reasons we gave. Uh, we went to um, our reason, our sense of morality, uh, the fact that we have a moral code that's kind of written in our hearts that supersedes human laws. I mean, they legalized abortion, and I think most of us know in our heart that's a human being. It's not meant to be tampered with. It has great value. Uh, that's a moral sense that goes beyond um, some written law. And even, I mentioned this morning, a, a society like Germany in the 30s where it was not only legal to exterminate certain people, it was the law. And so they said, that's our morality. And, and the rest of the world said, no, that's not morality at all. There's a higher law. Where did that law come from? A higher source. Uh, reason number six, the Bible's a uniquely consistent religious book written over 1,500 years. 
many cultures and languages and so forth, yet has a unified message. Seven, uh, the Bible's a uniquely historical religious book. There's lots of religions and lots of claims, but most of them are not rooted to history, and when they try, they're often wrong. The Bible is incredibly well substantiated through history, through archaeology, which I'll get to, through secular history, uh, and so forth. Reason eight, the Bible is a uniquely preserved work of antiquity. I talked about the overwhelming manuscript evidence, whereas most works of antiquity have a handful, 10, 12, 8, whatever, manuscripts. We have over 5,800 in Greek alone of the New Testament, and one scholar said it's an embarrassment of riches in terms of manuscript evidence. Reason nine, archaeology has powerfully verified the truth of uh, both Old Testament and New Testament claims. Uh, number 10, the Bible's a uniquely honest religious book. It doesn't bury its own dirt. It doesn't cover up the failures of people who were supposed to be the representatives of God that you know, made big mistakes and sins and it doesn't cover that up. It tells the truth. And that, you know, historians look at that. They call it the criterion of embarrassment. There are reasons to trust a book that will tell the truth even when it's not pretty uh, and not kind toward the people that wrote it or the, toward their society. Uh, and then I talked about miracles, especially Jesus is done in the presence of eyewitnesses, and they never dispute the miracles. They just try to catch them on a technicality. You did it on the wrong day, Jesus. Well, that's an admission that he did the miracle. Uh, and then 12, I talked about fulfilled prophecies. Uh, prophecies that, not, not end time things that we expect to happen still. This is talking about fulfilled prophecies that have already been fulfilled. Predictions like where the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem and how he would, be, uh, how, how he would suffer and die by being pierced. And that was predicted in Isaiah 700 years before it happened, and in the Psalms 1,000 years before it happened. And those are just a few examples. And just if you haven't been here, this is based on the book on the left, Confident Faith, which you see the red arrows on there. That, that's the one that corresponds to these 20 arguments, 20 arrows of truth. The book on the left hand, handles 10 of the top questions. We'll probably get into some of those in a few minutes. Um, and those, we still have some of those available. And I hope, hope you'll pick them up. I hate taking books home, you know. So, guys, this is your chance to do Christmas shopping early, you know, get her done. Um, and then now I want to pick up where I left off after the second service this morning. And uh, reason 13 might, might not sound like that big of a deal at first, but if someone comes and claims to be the Son of God, they better live a life that is different, right? A, a life that's amazing. Uh, Jesus came and made those claims, and then he lived them. And it's so interesting. You look at the end of his life, again, when his enemies that were just doing everything they could to get rid of this guy, and it came down to his final trial, and the only thing they could try to accuse him of was blasphemy because as a mere man, he was claiming to be God. But what if he was God? What if he was who we celebrate at Christmas, God incarnate, God becoming one of us? Then it wasn't blasphemy, it was amazing truth. So that was their only claim, but they, they knew they needed something a little more tangible, and they had nothing. So what did they do? 
they paid some false witnesses to come in and make stuff up about him and twist the truth. I'm sure glad we don't live in a society like that today that would, would tell falsehoods like that. I mean, you know, uh, you know, living in a world of all kinds of crazy stuff, fake news, who knows who to trust. I mean, this stuff happens. Well, it happened against the Son of God, and they accused him of sins when he was sinless. And especially this stands out in stark relief when you compare to other religious leaders. And the more you study other, you know, the guys that have like a good PR campaign and they look good up front, and then you really get to know who they are. And I'm thinking historically some of the leaders of some of the world religions, um, there's a lot of propaganda about folks, and then you get to know. And I'll just use one example uh, that's very politically incorrect to talk about, but I'll do it anyway. And that's Muhammad. I remember when I first met Muslims, and they described this wonderful, godly, gentle, you know, man who liberated the slaves and elevated women and, and uh, you know, was a peace-loving, just amazing leader that was impacting the world. And they went on and on. They said, there's never been a man like him. And I said, not even Jesus? Well, Jesus was a prophet. He was a good guy, but he wasn't Mohammed. I'm going, oh, Wow. Let's study this a little more. <laughs> well, uh, guess what? That is a very doctored report on a guy named Muhammad. And you study it. I mean, you know how he funded the original movement was raiding caravans and stealing you know, goods from traveling merchants. And he did this over and over and over, raiding. And uh, then as he began to build his religion and people would resist it, it was like, convert or die. Now, Jesus, there's no hint of anything like that with Jesus or his early followers. That was kind of became standard operation for Muhammad. Um, he liberated slaves. Well, maybe he liberated a, a couple of them, but he had a bunch of slaves of his own. And uh, slavery grew extensively through Islam, where it's written in the Quran that when you conquer a land, those people belong to you. And... Uh, that's why you see things like ISIS has been doing in recent years. That, they have Quranic verses to support what they're doing. Now, it doesn't make it right, it just makes it Islam. You know, and people love to say in the West, well, that doesn't really represent Islam. Have you ever read the Quran? So, uh, you know, and one more thing, Muhammad married many wives, including a six-year-old girl, and he consummated that marriage when she was nine. And this is fact. I mean... You know, honest Muslim scholars don't argue with that. They just try to say, you know, don't put your cultural values on that. I'm going, really? Um, compare all that to Jesus, who was gentle and meek and loving and told the truth even when it hurt and was ready to forgive and, and gracious and wonderful. And people were attracted to Jesus then and throughout history and now whole different deal. And one more thing I'll say on this, when he was in the final trial and they're making up stuff, you know, and he just said, remember he did this? I mean, you don't say this kind of thing if, you're, if you have a bad track record. He looked at his opponents, he said, who of you can convict me of sin? You know, give me your best shot. Now, if you want to know how unique that claim is, I dare you to try that with your family members when you get home tonight. 
look at them and say, who of you can, can you know, convict me of sin? And they're going, oh man, who's got some paper? Let's, let's start making lists, you know. Uh, isn't there an app for that where we can kind of categorize the sins by different categories, organize? I mean, our friends and family, they have the, the goods on us, right? They know because we are imperfect people. Jesus lived under the spotlight for years, and he said, who of you can convict me of sin? And then they had to make up stuff. So it's quite a unique claim in reality about Jesus. Reason 14. Now I can add an arrow here. This, by the way, is a really big arrow. And of course, we could spend the rest of the night just talking about the evidence and the implications of the resurrection of Christ. But uh, you know this, that not only did he fulfill prophecies, not only did he do miracles, not only did he live this wonderful, sinless life, but he ultimately pinned everything on the fact that you destroy this temple, he said, and in three days, I will raise it up. And he was talking about his body. He was predicting the crucifixion and the resurrection. And he explained that more clearly to the disciples who still didn't quite comprehend it. But very clear. He called it the sign of Jonah. And referring back to Jonah, who you know, was in the belly of the whale for three days and then was spit out on the beach and was alive. He, he called it the sign of Jonah. And he staked everything on this. And then he was crucified, and three days later, he came back. What we're going to celebrate in a few weeks at, at Easter time. And people, people say, well, is there really good evidence for this? This is the stuff that Lee, my friend Lee Strobel tried to disprove because he wanted to get his wife out of this cult that he thought she had joined called the church. Um, and if you watch the movie, if you haven't seen it, it's the Case for Christ movie or read his book, The Case for Christ. It's a great movie. It's not one of these cheesy Christian, you know, low-budget things. It's a really good movie. And it was on Netflix for years. You can get it on Amazon Prime now, or you can order the DVD or Blu-ray or whatever. But the Case for Christ movie, it tells the story. Lee Strobel was an atheist, a skeptic, and he did not like Christianity. And when his wife came and told him he'd become a Christian, he was mad. He said, as an atheist, that was the worst possible news. You know, my wife's now, she's a fun-loving Leslie has now become a Jesus freak. That was his attitude. What are you going to do now? Start giving away all of our money? You know, you're going to start working in soup kitchens? We won't be able to go on vacation anymore? He was mad. He said the first word that came to his mind was divorce, as soon as she said that. And so then he thought, no, I, I'm, a, I'm an, an investigative journalist. He's a reporter, award-winning reporter for the Chicago Tribune, uh, the head of their legal affairs division. He had studied law at Yale. He thought, I'm just going to spend a weekend. I'm going to refute the resurrection of Jesus. If he didn't rise, Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 15, we're <laughs> fools. We're hopeless. We're pitiable people. Uh, and he, he found out about all that. You know, he said, okay, then I'll just unmantle, you know, dismantle the resurrection, get my wife out of this thing, and we have fun again. So he started studying. And in the movie, it, it seems like maybe a few weeks or months, it was almost two years that he investigated this as kind of his main thing he was doing. And he didn't tell her he was doing it. He was kind of reading at night and checking things out, talking to people, hoped to, to dismantle it in the deeper he looked, the more convinced he became. And he said it reached a point where this avalanche of evidence kept proving him wrong. 
And his conclusion was, he finally said, I reached a point where I thought it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than it would to just give up and become a Christian because the evidence is pointing toward Jesus being raised from the dead. And of course, that's what happened. He finally reached a point where he said, I can't fight this. I, you know, in the movie, there's that dramatic scene, I give up, God, you win. And it shows how he becomes a follower of Christ. And that was all based on historical records and evidence. And I, you know what? I have friends, uh, I have a friend that some of you have been reading their books, uh, Gary Habermas, for example, or Mike Lacona. Uh, these are resurrection experts with PhDs who spend all their time studying it. Gary Habermas is writing a new book of evidence. You guys hear about this? Oh, I think it's going to be like 5,000 pages or something. It's like all the evidence. And this is a professor at Liberty. I mean, he's just, he's given his life to one arrow right here. That's what he does. Years ago, he debated the guy that was at the time the lead uh, academic uh, atheist philosopher in the world from England. They debated, and they had a bunch of secular uh, philosophy professors you know, judging the debate, and at the end, uh, out of these five secular philosophers, four said that Habermas won, the evidence pointed to the resurrection, and the fifth one said, I, I, I'm not going to call it for the other guy, but it's, it's probably a tie. So four and a half out of five votes went to the evidence for the resurrection. Now, the way Habermas describes it, and Lee kind of, Lee Strobel kind of sums it up, I'll just give you the short stuff, but uh, Lee likes to talk about four E's. First of all, Jesus was really executed. Am I pushing buttons up here? Um, the execution was real. Jesus wasn't just, you know, you know, getting tired on the cross or something or swooning or, you know, they have all these terms. You know, that used to be a theory. He, he kind of survived it. Even the American Medical uh, Journal, whatever it is, did a study on this. They said, it's clear from history he was dead even before the spear was thrust up his side. And if he hadn't been dead by then, he's dead now. Jesus was dead. He was executed. Uh, secondly, there was an empty tomb three days later. You know, the women went first, then the, uh, Peter and John, and they, they ran up. The body was gone. So, you know, how do you explain an empty tomb? A lot of people like to say, well, you know, later, when you get to the third one, the, the, or, there were eyewitnesses who saw the risen Savior. Some people say, well, that was just a hallucination. Well, if it was a hallucination, where was the body? Oh, and by the way, back to the empty tomb, the opponents of Jesus had to make up a cover story. They said, well, here's what we're going to say. While the guards outside the tomb were sleeping, the disciples came and stole the body. Have you ever thought about how ridiculous that story is? If the guards were sleeping, how do they know what happened? If they were sleeping and they saw disciples, you know, and these are guards with, you know, trained to fight, they're not going to be afraid of a bunch of, you know, religious, you know, like the deacons are coming, you know. It's like they're not going to be, like, militarily intimidated by that. They're going to stop them. But if they're sleeping, then they don't know what happened. So one way or another, the story makes no sense. But again, it's sort of like the people saying Jesus healed on the Sabbath is an admission that he healed and did miracles. Well, when they, as soon as they said, well, while the, disciples, or while the guards were sleeping, the disciples stole the body, what did they just admit? The tomb's empty. And we're not sure why. And we're not happy about it. 
Okay, the tomb was empty. Then you have the eyewitnesses who saw the risen Savior. Not just once and not just one group of people. Multiple groups of people over weeks of time in different places, different locations, day, night, inside, outside. They saw him, they talked to him, they touched him, they ate with him. Overwhelming evidence for them. And then the fourth E is early accounts. These things were written down almost immediately. And you'll hear a cliche. Now, if you, if you start talking about this, you're going to hear people say, what are you talking about? It was written down about two centuries later. And so by the time anyone wrote it down, like a couple hundred years later, a bunch of myth had grown up, and you, know, you can't trust any of that. Well, that's just old rumors. That's fake news right there. Not only were the Gospels all written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses, Paul's writings came before that, and he talked about seeing the risen Savior. And Paul's writings include an early creed that is recorded in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses like 3 to 8 or so, 3 to 7. And this, he talks about how that which was handed to me, given to me, I now relay to you. It's a formal way of saying, here's a formalized creed of the early church that tells you what happened, and I'm relaying it to you. And when Paul got this, I mean, there's, there's different theories. It was either within months or within three or, three or you know, just a few years that he had this creed, and then he is relaying it. And the creed talks about how, how Jesus died for our sins, was buried, was raised the third day, you know, and appeared to many witnesses. And he names a bunch of the witnesses, said even 500 witnesses all at once. And he says, in the last of all, he appeared to me too. But he gives this list of eyewitnesses, and this is a creed that probably goes back to within months of the actual thing. Not 200 years, months. And as one person said, this is like a newsflash from early history. It's all written down. And no one's arguing. You don't have all of a sudden other people going, this is nonsense, this didn't happen. No, there's, there's no conflicting accounts. This is what happened. And the only reason, I think, to, for someone to say, I'm not going to accept it, is just because they refuse to accept the evidence. And so if they want to take a blind leap of faith and not trust Jesus, they're welcome to do it. I hope they won't. I hope you won't. Because the evidence points to the resurrection. And it stands up in debates. It stands up in writings. It's, it's powerful. Okay, so that's a big one. Because as, as people have said, you know, if you're going to follow someone, if you're going to trust some religious leader, and you know, one of them is making up stories and raiding caravans or all these other things I've talked about, and the other one lives a sinless life, fulfills prophecies, does miracles, predicts his death and resurrection in three days, and then does it, he's probably the guy to follow. And that's where I want to put my trust is in a living Savior who not only fulfilled all of that, but is, who is alive to forgive my sins today, to lead my life, to fill me with his spirit, to guide me ultimately into heaven. And I think you want that too. All right. Reason number 15. Let me draw another arrow. This, by the way, if, if, if you're doing the four E's, this is actually a fifth E. The emergence of the church points to the truth of its message. 
And what we're talking about is, if you read in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, where Peter stands up in front of the, these, this big crowd of Jewish people in Jerusalem, here's what you need to understand. This is just a few weeks after all these events happen. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the appearances and all. That has just happened. And Peter stands up and talks to a Jewish audience, and he says, men of Israel... You know, the, the, the one that Jesus, excuse me, that the Father sent, that, that God sent, he was the Messiah. And evil leaders of yours put him to death. They murdered him. And, uh, you know, and then he goes on to say, but the good news is the murdered Messiah is not mad. He, he came back to life three days later. And if you call on the name of the Lord, you can be saved. And these, this group of people, again, I'm emphasizing that it was Jewish just because it was right there in Jerusalem. These are people like in the know kind of people. And they didn't say, what are you talking about? Resurrection, come on, give me a break. Let's go look at his tomb. Let's find, you know, they didn't do any of that because they knew it was true. And they, instead, if you read the passage, what they did is they said, yeah, we know. Uh, what do we do to be saved? You know, like, help us, Peter. What, what's, what's the solution? We know we're in trouble. And he presents the message. He says, if you call in the name of the Lord, the risen Jesus will forgive you, you know, trust in him, repent of your sins, be baptized. And if you know the rest of the story, 3,000 of them did that day. Talk about church growth, huh? Uh, this is amazing. And the emergence, the fact that the church could be born and expand like that in the very city where Christ had been crucified a few weeks earlier tells you that the Christian version of the story makes sense. And the evidence supported it. And there wasn't a body in the tomb. And, and the, the opponents of Jesus had no answer for this. And if it hadn't been true, there's no way in the world the church could have exploded into growth in the very place where all of this happened. Maybe if you went around, you know, went over to Egypt or something and told the story and they had no information, maybe that would have worked, but not in Jerusalem unless it was true. And it was true, and that's strong evidence for the truth of it. Reason 16, the changed lives of the early skeptics affirmed the claims of Christianity. Um, here, what I'm talking about here is the early people who didn't believe it, didn't want it to be true, who were against it, and aghast by the whole idea of it, who then changed their minds. And you go, well, what changed their minds? Uh, one of them was James, the brother of Jesus, who didn't believe it. Um, I was thinking of a couple brothers here in the church. Um, Luke, can you imagine if someone, if Caleb started claiming to be God? You know, like I'm, I'm the Son of God in human flesh. You'd be going, really? Huh? Um, well, that was what James did with Jesus, just because he couldn't quite. My brother, what's he claiming? I mean, my goodness, he just didn't buy it at first. And then later, after the crucifixion, James saw the risen Jesus, his brother, and realized, knew it was true and became one of the, not just a follower of his brother as the Messiah, he became an early leader of the early church. But the example that I think is the strongest was this young guy named Saul, who hated Christianity. He had heard all the stories. He was going to squelch this thing. He was the greatest persecutor of the church, and he was going around arresting Christians, throwing them in prison. He was there, if you read in, uh, was it Acts 7? 
with Stephen. Come on, students. Seven? Yeah, okay. Thanks, Pastor. By the way, if any hard questions come up today, they got the pastor over here. So, um, so Stephen is put to death. He's stoned by the crowd, and Saul is there approving of it because we got to get rid of this cult called Christianity because it's bad and it's wrong and it's false and it's corrupting uh, the Israel, you know, religion, Judaism. And then what happened? You know the story. Saul is on his way to Damascus, the, the famous road to Damascus, uh, to get more Christians, to persecute them, to throw them in prison. And on the way, Jesus appears to him. And he's, you know, knocked down and he's blinded by this bright light. And he describes it and talks about how the Son of God, Jesus, the risen Savior, talked to him, called him to follow him, you know, spoke to him. Uh, and it was an incredible supernatural experience, but it was a vision, not just a vision, it was a sighting of the real risen Jesus, enough to take Saul, the greatest persecutor of the church, and almost overnight turn him into Paul, the greatest missionary of the church. And here's the question, how do you account for that except for a resurrected Jesus? It wasn't like there was anything in it for Paul. I mean, even when he was told that, you know, I'm going to turn you around, uh, the, the voice, you know, Jesus, and he, Jesus told Ananias, I'm going to show this guy how much he can suffer for me. You know, he's made all my people suffer, now he's going to suffer for me. It's like, uh, who wants to sign up, you know? Um, but that's what happened. And he, so you go, Paul wasn't, it's not like he got some big, you know, movie deal out of it or something, you know? There, I'm just saying there's no incentive for him to lose his reputation and his high status as a Pharisee and a teacher of the law. and Why would he give all that up unless it was true and he saw the risen Jesus? And that's the only reason that makes sense to me. And I think that's what happened, and it's further evidence for the truth of Christianity, that these guys would be turned around like that. Reason 17. Um, the willingness of the disciples to die... For what, you know, for what they believed to be true, affirmed the claims they were making about Jesus, the risen Savior, and so forth. Here's the way it's often put is, um, you know, no one willingly dies for what they know is a lie. Uh, another way it's put is, you know, um, uh, liars make really poor martyrs. <laughs> um, and so now people will say, well, there's Muslim terrorists who die every day for what they believe is true. There's a difference. They believe what it, that it's true, so they're willing to die for what they believe. The disciples didn't just believe it, they knew. So the, the way I said that was very important. No one's willing to die, willingly dies for what they know to be a lie. The Muslim terrorists that die for their, their beliefs are deceived to believe it's true. The disciples weren't in that kind of position. They knew whether Jesus rose or not. They were there. Knowing what was true, they were willing to die for it, and a number of them did. So that's powerful evidence. When someone will go right to the grave, right to the, you know, here, here comes the axe, here comes whatever. You know, tradition says that Peter may have been crucified, some traditions say upside down, for the truth of, of Jesus, and he was unwilling to recant. 
Now again, it's not certain whether that's how he died, but we know that none of the disciples ever came back and go, yeah, yeah, we made it up. That just didn't happen, and they were all willing to die for it. That's powerful evidence. Reason 18, uh, the changed minds of modern skeptics. And I, I like to put this in there because it's not like the evidence was just strong 2,000 years ago. It's strong today. And there's lots of stories. I, I've already talked about Lee Strobel, who didn't want it to be true and was you know, overwhelmed by an avalanche of evidence that convinced him it was true against his will. And he gave his life to Christ. Uh, I'm friends with a guy named Jay Warner Wallace, who's a cold case detective in uh, Los Angeles, who, very similar story to Lee's, uh, began to investigate it and, and kind of analyze it like a detective would. And he reached a point where he said, I can't argue with this. The, the evidence points to the truth of this. And he wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity. It's a great book. And uh, Josh McDowell, the famous apologist, originally when he was in college, he, he, he set out to disprove the resurrection. Dangerous thing to do. Uh, ended up not only being a believer, but he became Josh McDowell, <laughs> a famous apologist who's been doing this stuff now for half a century or more. Um, and I could go on. There's just lots of these stories, and I think they point to the, how strong the evidence is because in many cases they are convinced when they don't want to be, where there's a lot to lose. Uh, you know, when Lee came to Christ, he never knew he would write books or any of that. Uh, I, Lee Strobel and I were hired the same day to, and started in ministry the same day together back in 1987. And you know what? He, he left the newspaper business and took a 60% pay cut to work for the church. And when I was just getting to know him, he told me that. And he said, and you know what? He said, don't tell, don't tell the church leadership, but I would have done it for free. <laughs> he said, I just got to do what matters here. And that's a changed heart. That's a changed, changed life. And the fact that there's a lot of those who are changed by the evidence, I think, is good evidence. Uh, the next one, this, this comes to you. And all, you know, all of us in the room who follow Christ and all of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, and that is the testimonies of countless believers today who attest to the truth of the Christian faith. It's still the largest religion in the world, and even though the church is taking a lot of hits here in the U.S. and in the West, you know it's exploding in growth around the world. And if you got my book, uh, I have the, the new book on evangelism, how we can share our faith. It's called Contagious Faith. In the last chapter, I give a bunch of statistics and stories about the explosive growth of the Christian faith around the world. It is, it's gaining territory like crazy. Now they just need to send some missionaries from Africa to America to help us. <laughs> but, uh, you know, amazing things are happening and the fact that there's you know, mil billions of people who say this is true and I've experienced the living God, I think is worth considering when you're saying is this true or not. And especially when a guy like Richard Dawkins says the onus is on you, you're the ones claiming something, so the onus, the responsibility is on you to prove it to us because the natural thing is not to believe. And we went, well, you know, you ought to talk to 90% of the people in the world who believe there is a God and think they have good reasons for it. Seems like when 90% of people believe something, the onus is on you to prove them wrong. I, I compare it to the Holocaust. You know, the people that deny the Holocaust are the ones that have the onus to, to try to prove their point. 
because the evidence is against them. And I think the same is true. The evidence is pointing toward what we believe. Uh, Good luck disproving it. So I think that's a good argument. And then the last one, at first, you may not know how to take it, but I I really want to talk about this for a minute. Jesus said so. And he has the credentials to know. And here's what I mean by this. Uh, You know, there's a lot of people today, especially younger people who are doubting their faith, and, and they, they approach the Bible and they say, you know, I, I don't think I believe those stories. Uh, that seems a little far-fetched to me. Um, maybe, maybe they were making stuff up, or maybe that was just the best that they understood. That. And they're, they're willing to throw out the scriptures, they're willing to throw out a lot of this evidence and information. And I just say, all right, let's, let's approach the whole thing a different way. The guy who fulfilled prophecies, did miracles, staked it all on his death and resurrection, and three days after his crucifixion, a brutal death, comes back stronger than ever, and able to appear in rooms and do miracles. And That guy says the word of God is living and active. He says the, the, the Bible, you know, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away, not even the smallest little jot or tittle, which is like, a dotted I or a, uh, you know, the cross on the T, every bit of it will be fulfilled. He looked at people that were his critics. He said, you're in error because you do not know the scriptures. And so I just back up and I go, before you start discounting what the Bible says and calling things contradictions that probably aren't, what did Jesus say? Jesus was not squishy on these things. God is real. He is the Son of God. The Bible is the Word of God, which will not fail, cannot be broken, he said. Scripture cannot be broken. Um, I want to be on, you know, people talk about being on the right side of history. I want to be on the right side of Jesus. Um, I want to believe what he believed and support what he put all of his weight behind because he was the guy with the credentials on the wall to say, I know what I'm talking about. And I think, I mean, just that, you can almost back off a lot of these other arguments and go to this and say, the guy that rose from the dead says this is true. And I think that's a good argument, a good apologetic. And so let me now, let me wrap this up and then we're going to go to Q&A, but I want to just show you a couple things uh, about this chart because I'm kind of going somewhere with this. And as you look at this chart, uh, you say, all right, there seems to be a pattern here, right? It seems to be pointing somewhere. And, you know, call me narrow-minded, but I kind of think the truth is somewhere in here. Now, by the way, I believe, you know, the First Amendment, I believe in what our country stands for, religious freedom, or at least it, it did. And I think we had a fight for religious freedom and all kinds of freedom and, and support it. And I support, even though I have given you reasons, I'm not a Muslim and I'm not a Mormon and I'm not a Jehovah's Witness and I'm not a Hindu or a Buddhist, I will die for the rights of people to believe what they want to believe. And I think as Christians, we ought to be the most tolerant people. And I mean tolerance in the old-fashioned way where you agree to disagree and still support someone's rights to believe it. That's good, and I think that's biblical and I don't mean tolerance, the, the mushy new kind where it says everyone's right. 
you know, we all have our own truth. No, there is truth. Truth is reality. And some of us are right and some of us are wrong. And I think we're right because I think we have good reasons. But I support someone's right to believe this over here. But when I talk to them, I'm going to say, you, you know, it's a free country. You can believe what you want. But do you have good reasons? Really? Okay, what are your reasons? And let me compare them to mine. And, and I challenge people, say, if you want to believe this, then where, where are your arrows? And where they contradict our belief, how are you going to refute ours? Because ultimately what I want to say is I'm not going to force any. I don't want to manipulate anyone or coerce anyone. I want to convince people with truth. I said this morning, let's be lovers of truth. And so I think the evidence points our direction. And anyone that's over here, I'll, I'll listen to them. I think, you know, 1 Peter 3.15 says to us as believers, be ready to give answers and, and reasons and all of this. But do it with gentleness and do it with respect. And I, I, I know there are very sincere people in other belief systems who uh, may not get it yet and may not agree. And, and I want to be respectful. I want to be loving toward them. And I try to do that with neighbors and friends and people I meet from different points of view. And they don't all become Christians, but some of them do. Because over time, as we pray for people, pray for our one, and as we show them these kinds of reasons... A lot of people end up changing their minds, like Lee Strobel or like uh, one of my best friends was a guy named Nabil Qureshi. Uh, he wrote a book called Seeking Allah. He was a Muslim. His book's called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And I didn't lead him to Christ, but I became friends with him very quickly after he became a Christian. And I'm talking past tense. He sadly passed away at a young age, but his book, you want an amazing book. Seeking Allah, finding Jesus. Because what he began to do is talk to a Christian friend named David Wood who began to dismantle the arrows that Nabil thought pointed to the truth of Islam. And then David began to reinforce all of this other stuff. And it took seven or eight years, but Nabil finally reached a point where he gave his life to Christ and became a, an incredible spokesman for Christianity. And, and that book was one of three he wrote. It's powerful. This stuff happens a lot, and, and here's what I want to do in conclusion of the talk part of the portion of the night, and that is say, what's the truth it points to? And when I show this to people, I think a lot of people say, well, the existence of God. God is real. He does exist. And I'm going, well, yeah, that's, that's part of it, but I'm not just talking about theism, you know, just that there's a God. I mean, that's true. But there's more than that. What it tells us is that the God who exists came down and became one of us. He was incarnate in Christ. And this idea of the Trinity is a biblical idea. There's, the Father is eternal, but so is the Son, and he became incarnate as a human being, took on a human nature, came down and became one of us, lived among us, and ultimately spread out his arms and died for us on the cross. And friends, I think all good information from philosophy, science, history, archaeology, miracles, the Bible, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and so on, all ultimately points to the truth of the gospel message of Christ, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that there is forgiveness available, that the penalty we owe was paid for by Jesus on the cross, 
just as he predicted. He said he came to seek and to save that which was lost, that's us, and to lay down his life as a ransom, a payment. He paid for our sins, just as that early creed says in 1 Corinthians 15. He died for our sins to separate us from our sins so that ultimately we could give him our sins and he would give us his righteousness. And we can live forgiven and free and liberated but as loved sons and daughters of God. Yeah, that's worth clapping for. And as I said this morning, if you've already committed your life to Christ, you're following him, then I hope this just emboldens you with confidence so you'll share it with your friends. And you can draw a picture like this and talk about some of these reasons and get to the cross and then get to the point that I want to with the rest of you and say, if you haven't embraced the Savior yet, this would be a good day for it. To reach that point where you say, this is making sense now. I now see that this is not some blind leap of faith. Uh, in fact, there's a whole lot more reasons than I ever realized. And it's starting to make sense to me. And the ultimate response isn't to nod your head and go, oh, okay, it's true. If it's true, you got to do something about it. And the last illustration before we go to Q&A, um, I'm from Denver now. That's, that's where I live. And tomorrow... I'm heading to the airport here in Charleston, and I'm going to get on an airplane, and I'm going to fly home. But here's, I want to diagnose this for a minute. It's not enough for me to just believe that airplanes fly. That doesn't get me home, does it? Um, it's not enough for me even to go to the airport and sit in the terminal and watch airplanes take off. You know, I could do that and spend the rest of my life in the terminal. You know, there's a bad movie about that. Terminal, I think it's called. Uh, the movie was Terminal, so don't bother. But, but I could go and do that and spend as long as I want. And I could be reading books about aviation, become an expert on the science of flight. I'm still stuck in the airport. I'm not getting home until I turn my now belief in flying and belief in aviation into a step of faith and I climb on board the airplane. And it's that step of faith that will get me home. Friends, there's a lot of people in churches who sit in church and nod their head and go, yeah, yeah, I believe in the science of whatever he just said. And it's like me sitting in the terminal believing airplanes fly and never getting on board. You have to get on board. And so my, my urging, my challenge to you is to say, Yes, I do believe it. That's the first step. You're not going to get on an airplane if you don't believe they fly, right? So, yeah, that's a good first step. Nod your head and then say, and now I will respond. Now I'm going to climb on board with the Savior by saying yes to Jesus, asking him to forgive my sins, cleanse my heart, change my life, become my forgiver and my leader, and you pray and you receive his salvation, you're baptized into the church, you become a follower of his, and that's where the adventure begins of being a son of God, a daughter of God who's following him wholeheartedly. That's what I did when I was 19. It was the best decision of my life. I've, I've been busy ever since, you know, on this adventure, and I know many of you could give the same testimony. If you haven't done that yet, do it tonight. And uh, David, I think, will explain how, how, how that could work 
And uh, I don't know if you want to do that now or later. I'm, I'm done with the talk and ready to go to Q&A. But do you want to say something about that, David? Uh, I think you said it well, Mark. Uh, if anybody wants to know...